Well, hello. Hello, so good to see you. I'm a little overwhelmed today, and so apologies if any of you talk to me on a sort of one-to-one -one level, I apologize in advance for the randomness of that conversation, because uh, overwhelmed in a good way, I think. Like, you know, there's overwhelmed, which is bad, and then there's overwhelmed, which is, which is, uh, which is good. It's, just, it's so great to be back with you. So we don't have a new journal yet. Um, I'm hoping you're going to forgive me of that because I've been away. I don't know if you knew that. I do have plans for a new journal, and I'll talk to you a little bit about that in the coming, in the coming weeks. Uh, but for now, uh, we're just going to sort of freestyle our way into uh, September. I want to read from the gospel for you today, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me as you read the gospel. I feel like sometimes uh, it's good to stand when we read the gospel and just sort of kind of hold a sense of reverence for the words that tell us about, about Jesus. And I'm reading today a text from John chapter 13. So as we, as we hear this together, let's just silence our hearts, quieten our conversations, and let me read. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then perhaps you'd like to join this response with me. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us remain standing if we can and pray. This is a prayer taken from a few spaces in the book of Revelation. Splendor and honor and royal power are yours by right, O God Most High. For you created everything that is, and by your will they were created and have their being. And yours by right, O Lamb that was slain. For with your blood you have redeemed for God from every family, language, people, and nation a royal priesthood to serve our God. And so, to the one who sits on the throne and to Christ the Lamb, be worship and praise, dominion and splendor forever and evermore. 
And Lord, as we stand here in the safety of this space, our hearts are turned right now to those in Morocco and all of the terrible situation we've saw there with so many people losing their lives. Lord, bring comfort to their families, bring guidance to rescuers, and as the aid workers and help pours in in the coming weeks, Lord, we pray that you will bring hope and togetherness to those communities once again. We ask it in your name. Amen. Why don't you take a seat where you are right now? So for the next three weeks, as I sort of figure out how to preach once again, (laughs) I want to preach from this story in the life of Jesus, the night before he's crucified. This fascinating story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the focus at this particular moment of Jesus' life is on the Eucharist meal, is on this this gathering that happens around the table that we uh, follow so often in the lives of Christians throughout the world ever since. But in John, John chooses to turn our gaze to a previously untold part of the evening, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Ronald Rollheiser, as he writes about this moment, says that what you get in John is that words are replaced with a gesture. Then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're we're given these words that are said over the meal by Jesus, but in John, he looks beyond the words to the actions. What does Jesus then do? And I'm drawn to this story. I mean, I think it's formative for the church. I think if we do listen to what the Spirit says to us through a text like this, there is much for us to learn and be shaped by. But I kind of want to draw some autobiography out of this story as well, because this text in John 13 has been a significant shaping text for me as I've reflected my way through this sabbatical. So as I kind of come back, and I want to talk a little bit to you about how I've prayed over the three months that I've been away, and also what I've done over the three months that I've been away, I want to sort of share it from this text, because this text was the text that was shaping me. I mean, you've been hugely gracious, and I want to keep saying thank you for your graciousness to grant me the space, so I thought it might help a little bit to give you some sort of, hey, here's what's been going on in me while I'm away. Now, I'll be honest, I'm kind of awkward by that. I would prefer just to, just to talk to you about the Greek of John chapter 13, or talk to you about all the things I didn't tell you about Jonah. Um, <laughs> But, but I want to lean into the community aspect of, of churches, allow pastors to have sabbaticals to help shape and form the pastor, but ultimately then to have good impact in the community as well. So as, as I said just before coffee, in June, I spent multiple different days in silent retreat at Mount St. Francis at, near Cochrane. Now, if you've never been to Mount St. Francis, then I would recommend going at some point just to go and find some space to pray. If you've ever done Lent retreat uh, with Westside, then that's, that's exactly where we host Lent retreat every year. And um, my spiritual director works there, and he pays very good attention to what's going on in my own soul. Sometimes it feels like he pays better attention than than I do. And as I arrived for a three-day retreat uh, where I was going to be spending the full three days up um, at at St. Francis, I I arrived and he'd set up a scene for me uh, in the prayer space that I was going to occupy for the three days. I have a picture of it here for you. To the left-hand picture, this is the scene that he'd set up in my space of prayer. You'll notice a water jug, a towel, um, the Bible, which was open to John 13, and this picture, which I've then enlarged for you on the side, of Jesus 
washing the disciples' feet. And he invited me into a sort of three-day reflection on this text, which had been kind of nibbling at me a little bit in the early part of my sabbatical already. And, and because he's a good spiritual director, he said, let's push into that and spend time reflecting on why is it that this text is the one that God seems to be giving you for this sabbatical space. I mean, look at this picture. God on his knees. I don't think the irony of the image is lost on John as he tells us this story. I mean, think about the wording we just read. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, and just as an exercise, imagine this was your story. Imagine if the story was about you, not about Jesus. And the story said, all power had been given to you. And that you were not only all powerful, you were from God and returning to God. So, what would the next words say? Like, you must have had one of those conversations one day where you're like, well, if I was in charge, Um, or if I was God for a day, you know, those sort of conversations. And here we have Jesus, all power, from God returning to God. And then John kind of hangs so much on this word, so what does Jesus do? He gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes feet. Like, this is a strange scene. You don't need to be sort of schooled in the ways of first century culture to know this is probably not normal. And forget whether it's not normal in the ancient world. Like, if you did this today, it would be a little uncomfortable. You know, believe me. Well, the next time you have people around for food, just try it. Get up after dinner, take off your clothes till you're just in your undergarments and start washing feet. See how it goes down. I think what you'll find is mild awkwardness. Just some people will be like, a little uncomfortable at this. And here the disciples are a little uncomfortable about this. And we'll unpack and talk about this or perhaps some more over the next couple of weeks. All I want to say is this looks weird. It's weird to do if you're not God. It's weird to do if you don't have all power and authority. But here we have Jesus doing this with this weight on him. At some level, it's not a huge surprise. In Philippians, we're told about Jesus who was in very nature God, but took the form of a human, the form of a slave, and died on a cross. So we've kind of seen this, the incarnation when we talk about it at Advent, that Christ becomes human. We sort of know that God seems to have a preference for condescending himself to our space. But this seems even more uncomfortable, that in his humanity, there's lore for him to keep stooping. And I don't think I'm understating it when I say this, that a scene like this is a total redefinition of what it is to lead, of what it is to have power, and of what it is to hold authority. It counters almost every image of leadership you are encouraged to imitate in the world. Leadership books, the guidance books, the managerial advice that you get, they don't look like this. They might lean towards it occasionally. The best we seem to get within the world is from time to time we talk about servant leadership. And we kind of just like to still make sure the leadership word is in there. What we see here is servanthood from Jesus. We are taught and conditioned in our society that if you want to lead, follow people like Steve Jobs. Follow people like Jeff Bezos from Amazon. And your question when you read this text 
is, is it Jeff Bezos or is it Jesus? I worked for three months on that rhyme and not a single response from you. Bezos or Jesus? Come on, that's, that's good, right? No. <laughs> I'll go back. I'll come back in three months with a better joke. Eugene Peterson identifies this truism in the world. And Jesus resists this. Peterson, in his book, The Unnecessary Pastor, says humility recedes as leadership advances. The greater power we seem to get in the world, the less humble we are. The greater authority we're given, the less humble we are. The greater influence we have, the less humble we are. I've seen this to be true. I see it every day in the world, and I see it far too regularly in the mirror. And I'm sure it's probably true for you as well. But I want to be a pastor like Jesus in this scene. The Jesus I encounter in John 13 is the person I want to be. And it's, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, it's a little bit like that's not what we often see. But I think there's something in the Holy Spirit draws us towards it. There's, this, there's something about this scene that we say, yes, that's what it should look like. We sort of, it's weird and awkward and abnormal, but deep within us, we also know it's how it should be. That's what it should look like to lead. It should be serving. It should be committed to being on our knees and working for those we're here for. At some level, I, I kind of left June with, with this image kind of seared into my mind of Jesus on his knees serving. And it kind of turned me, and while we were doing family stuff and, and, and tourist stuff in the UK, I kind of had this side note of postmodern pilgrimage going on as well, as we sort of started at one part of the UK and kind of worked our way around. And, and everywhere we traveled, I would kind of seek out some sort of Christian holy space while we were there. And, and there's a lot of them in the UK. I don't know if you know this, but we built a lot of churches and a lot of bars. Um, and it pretty much, most towns have at least one of each, right? And, uh, and they're all like really old, right? Like the wedding that I officiated was, was in a church that was 800 years old, right? I mean, it really changes what we mean when we say like this old place. <laughs> it's like 800 years old and it is not considered an old church because like that's like in the kind of new era. You know, the really old ones are getting over a thousand years old. We, uh, we went to all sorts of different places, Manchester Cathedral, Glasgow St. Mungo's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey uh, there in the middle. You might recognize that one from, from TV. And then via traversing an island, two ferries, single lane country roads, like I told you about. I thought the great thing about single lane country roads is you can't drive on the wrong side. There is just one side and everybody's on it. And, <laughs> and we found ourselves after that huge journey in Iona, where the famous abbey uh, sits. This is one of the oldest Christian sites in Europe, particularly uh, in, in sort of Western Europe. St. Columba was sent from the Irish Christians to, to take the gospel into Scotland. Uh, back in those days, you know, Scotland was essentially run by savages. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it's probably not even true to say back in those days. No? <laughs> and St. Columba was sent by the church in Ireland to take the gospel to the people of Scotland. And they got in a boat and, and they sailed across the, what we now call the Irish Sea and they arrived in I Iona. I don't know if they thought they were there yet. They didn't realize that Iona is an island on the side of an island which is on the side of Scotland. So there was still a bit of traversing to do to actually get to the mainland. But they set up this abbey there and have prayed there for 1,200 years. I mean, this is deeply spiritual space. 
And I would be tempted to say you can feel it when you're there. It feels like a thin space. And perhaps you've experienced this, this phenomena where there are spaces, in, I, I think, in the world where people have prayed lots, and somehow, as a result, it feels like it's an easier place to pray. That somehow you just sort of turn up there, and there's a sense of God's Spirit in that place. These early Christians, all of these cathedrals come with a story. And, and all of these cathedrals, you know, they're, they're also kind of tourist space. That's how they fund them often these days. So they tell you the story as you're in these sacred spaces. And the same story keeps repeating itself that there was a point where there was no one here. And then somebody, and maybe a few people with huge senses of sacrifice, traveled to that space and served in that space and gave up their life. When St. Columba got on the boat to go to Iona, everybody that said goodbye knew that he was never coming back. At two points during the history of Iona's abbey, Vikings came by and destroyed the place. I mean, like, you think you had a bad week? You know, the Vikings came by and sort of smashed the place up and destroyed it. And they kept going back and starting again because God has called us to this place to serve. It's not fancy, but it's good. And this story repeats itself. And these cathedrals are built to remember those sort of things. In some sense, you can look at it and go, wow, look at these amazing cathedrals. But actually, the story behind them is what's stunning. It's the story behind the abbeys that these places have been served in people that took Jesus so seriously, they say, this is where we're going, and this is where we're going to serve. And it's interesting to me, because when you, when you boil it down, when Jesus takes off all of his garments, what you're left with is a servant. You know, he took off his outer clothing. And I think that's quite significant. In, in a few hours' time, I mean, sorry, in the story, like in a few hours' time, not this sermon, um, I've been told you guys have been getting let out early recently, so I'm here to put that right. Um, <laughs> in a few hours' time, some soldiers are going to argue over Jesus' garments. These garments that he's just taken off, they're going to be argued about. And their garments, we know Jesus wasn't rich, but there was something about at least one of those garments that the soldier said, this is nice, let's not cut it up. So they cast lots for it. So the things that appear nice enough for others to want, Jesus takes off until he's left at some level exposed. And what do we see is a servant. That's what's underneath all of it. These, these saints of the past that went around the UK and then moved into other parts of the world, at, at their core, it was a call to serve the gospel in the way that they saw Jesus do it. Like, what are all of us? What am I? What are you underneath? the titles and the power and the authority or the appearances. Like for Jesus, under all, he came to serve. And this question has sort of lived with me through the sabbatical. What am I? How do I hold on to this image of Jesus in a world? And I don't mean a secular world, even within the church world. Ideas of leadership, perceptions of success, Concepts of growth are the buzzwords that we talk about maybe too often. How do I hold on to Jesus the servant? When sometimes even fellow pastors elsewhere, denominations, really want Jesus CEO rather than Jesus servant. Like, can I live with the realization that so often the reason that it's hard to be Jesus-centered is because of me? Because maybe I'm not always comfortable with the image of Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus, 
the servant. But I also have to confess that as a pastor, my being a pastor will always be an expression of what's happening in my own heart and actually of how much I'm comfortable with this image of Jesus. And if I'm not comfortable with this image of Jesus, it will come out. And if I am comfortable with it, hopefully it will also come out. And I think this is the ache that's been in me throughout the sabbatical. And I think for longer than that as well, it's just that this was the space I got to really spend some time thinking and meditating on that. And I think there's an ache in all of us, actually, for something of the truth of the way Jesus is. I think if we're honest, it's there for all of us. It's probably why we're here this morning and why we were here last week and why we'll be here next week, because we're looking for something deeper than just what we see in the world. We're looking for something deeper and truer. And it's awkward sometimes, and it looks a little unusual sometimes, but it's Jesus, and he's there, and we keep trying to cover him back up again. You see it with Peter. We'll talk about this more next week as well. No, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this Jesus. What if it was a bit more like that? And we keep covering over Jesus to get a Jesus that we're more comfortable with. Meanwhile, our soul aches for a deeper experience of the true and real Jesus. A Jesus is a little awkward, perhaps. A Jesus is not so easy to explain at work. A Jesus is definitely not easy to tame. A Jesus that's harder to sometimes talk about. But I wonder if you agree with me if I say it like this. that Sometimes something is lost in our religious experience when it's overly intellectualized and overly sanitized. Like we value ideas about Jesus sometimes more than we do an experience of Jesus. And notice what Jesus says, if you know these things, you will do them. He doesn't say if you know these things, you too can be a theologian. He says if you know these things, you can do them. You can experience them. You can be part of them. And I think, like, this is my Pentecostal heritage. As a Pentecostal, we we sought out an experience of God. We knew that God was present to us in surprising places, that God could reach us where we didn't normally expect to see Jesus. And, And at the core of Pentecostal theology was this idea that there's more of God. And I think it taps into something there for all of us, that we crave the holy and the sacred, even if we can't articulate it. Like, I was at all these sites over the course of, of, my, of my summer in the UK, and there was something different about a tourist in Iona than a tourist just in regular parts of London. Same tourists, same tourist sites, but something happens to us when we're in sacred spaces. Even if we're not able to articulate it, even if we're not able to, to, to express it, even if we don't carry what you would call a faith, it was fascinating to watch how tourists behaved in the different spaces. And the weird thing was, I say weird, unusual, mysterious, mystic thing was, that when people are in these holy sacred spaces, they behave differently. Is it because there's something in us that yearns for that, that we know that there's deeper and more out there? And of course, this story that we're talking about this morning, it it happens at the first Eucharist. It happens at the first Lord's Supper. Like, this is the original one. And and John John just mentions it as the meal after the meal, which I love, by the way. Like, he could have told us the story exactly as the other Gospels tell it to us, but he doesn't. It's almost as if he says, oh, you want to know that what happened at the meal? You need to go read their work, right? You need to go check out what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said, which, by the way, is a great principle. I'm not going to tell you everything you need to know about Jesus because you won't find all you need to know about Jesus in one place. 
You're going to have to go and read and search and pray elsewhere. But there's this beautiful tension that we find Jesus at the meal and at the table and also washing feet. He's in both of those places. And so for me, I'm learning, and this has been a journey of several years for me, but the ache for, a, for me personally for a deeper experience of Jesus has, has often been satisfied by taking the table of Jesus seriously, by, by leaning into the Eucharist table and remembering and, and being aware of what's happening here. Like in some of my tradition, the table was just a memorial space where we thought about what Jesus had done in the past. But as I've come to learn and think about the table as a consecrated sacred space, a thin space, wherever we celebrate the table, that we know that Jesus is somehow mysteriously present to us. Now, this draws me into a very curious space. I am a pastor with an evangelical love for teaching Scripture. One of the great gifts the evangelical church gave to the church was a love for Scripture. Now, many of you may disagree with how they've taught Scripture, but Scripture was serious and important, and we wanted to learn it. And then I grew up Pentecostal, and Pentecostals have this heart for the active work of the Holy Spirit. We're just waiting for the Holy Spirit to jump up and grab us at any moment and also make our services much longer. And, uh, but, but we love this sense of God just speaking to us and working in us. But then here's me with this kind of evangelical Pentecostal tension in my life being drawn into also deeper liturgical, sacramental, prayerful traditions of the church of finding myself loving being at the table and the depth of that. And over my journey over the last sort of several years of encountering this, I had kind of come to rest in the realization that I was probably just going to live a conflicted life. <laughs> that I was, I was just going to have this kind of weird series of tensions that didn't work for me. And then kind of early in the pandemic, I was invited and, well, I was introduced to and then invited to pray with a group of people who are known as the Order of St. Anthony. I just pulled an extract from, uh, from their website uh, just now that, to help you understand what drew me towards them. This is a group of people who are Pentecostal, evangelical, and committed to the liturgical and sacramental traditions. And they say this. They say the purpose of the Order of St. Anthony is to provide an ordered way of life for both clergy, as in pastors and ministers, and laity, people that are part of the church, for prayer, spiritual direction, confession, and spiritual friendship. We believe entering holy habits like these are formative to the human soul, empowering us to be reflective of God's glory and making those who participate in them carriers of God's kingdom. As I started to pray with these people, what I loved about them was their heart was to, was to draw people like me in situations exactly like I am in. Not to draw me out of those situations, but to come alongside me and say, this Pentecostal heart, this evangelical heart, this heart for the liturgical and the sacramental, they do converge together and they can live together. And we want to join with you and support you as you, as you journey like this. So I've been, for the last couple of years, and I've alluded to this in, in a few uh, conversations that I've had with you all, for the past few years, I've been following this ordered way of life, of structured prayer in my life, of, of leaning into prayer liturgies from the past, of taking Eucharist regularly, of fasting, of, 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 of leaning into the things that we, we are talked about here. 
And, and something very strange has happened that I didn't realize, but it sort of renewed my Pentecostal heart. It's brought a new sense of God's Spirit, renewed sense. It's not new. God's Spirit's been doing the same thing. It's new to me, though. I'm finding something fresh happening. So what I did is I joined this order in order to pray. But as it grew, earlier this year, I took vows of holy orders with them. And then during, during the summer after our time uh, in the UK, my family came with me to Tulsa in Oklahoma where, where the order was founded. And I was ordained by them as a missional priest and then have been sent essentially back here now to continue serving you as my pastor. This has been like a deeply formative and uh, shaping thing for me. And at some level, I suppose, what does that mean? And why am I sharing this with you now? Well, I'm just back, and I want to tell you a little bit about what's happened while I've been away. And on one hand, it probably doesn't need to make that much difference at all. Uh, in fact, it doesn't need to make any difference to you at all. But on the other hand, think about it like this. Um, churches give pastors sabbaticals to bring some sense of renewal in them. And I think it's important then for the pastor to take that renewal seriously and say, what are the things that, that I should do and commit to and reset to ensure that I can be a good pastor for you as a community? And think about, here's what I've noticed to be true in the world. Oftentimes, pastors are employed by churches. And then they're credentialed by the same denomination that that church is part of. And this is good. There's nothing wrong with this. Uh, it's absolutely good, and, we, and I continue to participate in that. But what I've noticed is the pastor's title and the pastor's status is then connected to the job, the job description, the employment contract, and the denomination. And this starts to create some weird moments for pastors in terms of identity, in terms of calling. Let me just simply explain this in one sentence. Have you ever had a pastor that you've encountered has lost their job and their whole sense of who they are seems to disappear at the same time? Have you ever met that? You bumped into an old pastor friend of yours and he's not pastoring anymore and you're like, something's kind of weird going on here. And, and what I've come to realize is that that's because we're putting too much weight on the outer garments to use this language of, of Jesus in John chapter 13. What's actually going underneath that? Where is the call to serve? Not something that comes with a bit of paper from, from you know, your employer or a bit of paper from a credentialing denomination, but what's the actual call to serve? What have you been ordained into? Uh, in Peterson's book, The Unnecessary Pastor, he, he says this, which I find really helpful, because what ordination does, and it's, it's called by other names in different traditions, but it's not a temporary or a status-related thing, but it's seen as a grace which is, which is placed upon you by the Holy Spirit to permanently mark you to serve the church. Peterson says this one day while he's watching climbers. He says, it suddenly struck me that my ordination vows had functioned for the past 40 years as pitons, the pegs driven firmly into the vertical rock face on which Christian ministry is played out. Vows are pegs, protection against moods and weather, miscalculation and fatigue. Vision and call, risk and inspiration, are what we are most aware of and what others see when we become pastors or take up leadership positions in the church. But if there is no protection, the chances of survival are slim. And so we take vows. Various churches and denominations have different ways of wording them, but they all amount to about the same thing. Protection. So I got to the point at 44 years old that I decided it was the right time to accept the invitation to be ordained to a lifetime of serving 
the church. Fun fact, you can't undo an ordination. Um, so when you're called into it, it's not something you say, this is what I want to do. It's something that, that the, the, the other, others say, we want to call you into this because we recognize what God's doing in your life. Uh, but there's this humorous conversation where we're told that, that being called and ordained as a priest, you can't be an ex-priest, you just be a bad priest or a good priest. So I'm, really, I'm going for good, just so you know, okay? That's what I'm aiming for. Uh, side note, that may be terrifying some of you. That doesn't mean you're stuck with me forever, by the way. You can still fire me if you want to. But, but my identity and my calling to serve the church isn't connected then to where I'm working, but rather more a recognition of what God is doing in me. There's two moments, just as I sort of bring things to a close this morning, there's two moments that were deeply significant to me that I hope will help to sort of make sense of this particular journey, frame it perhaps for you, and see why this decision that I've made is so rooted in what God's been doing in John chapter 13 in, in, in my life. The first is actually a little extract from my ordination service in Oklahoma. And at one point, you are asked to kneel uh, while hands are laid upon you uh, because that's how, even right through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is conferred onto people. And a prayer is said over you. And, and these are the words, the exact words of the prayer that were said over me. And, and I hope you'll hear why this is so significant for me and why I think it's important to share it. The prayer was this, may he, that's me, may he exalt you, O Lord, in the midst of your people. Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you. Boldly proclaim the gospel of salvation and rightly administer the sacraments of the new covenant. Make him a faithful pastor, a patient teacher, and a wise counselor. Grant that in all things he may serve you without reproach so that your people may be strengthened and your name glorified in all the world. All this we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Like hopefully you can hear the John 13 resonance in that and the significance for me personally to commit to that and take vows into that. The second thing that happened, which may be a little different at some level from the tradition that you're used to, uh, is from the traditions that I grew up in, but actually very common in other traditions, was, was you're, you're given this stole. You've seen these before uh, on pastors and ministers and priests. Uh, this is the actual stole that I was given at my ordination. And it's placed over your shoulders like this, not because they want to cover over your denim, um, but, but he wants it as just a piece of material, but the material is shaped in a very particular way because it's it designed, not so that you see it and go, oh, that's guys in charge, but so you see it and remember the yoke, the oxen wear in the field. Right? And what happens is when, when a yoke is placed on oxen, they are strapped into the farm machinery and now the master of the oxen will choose where they go. The oxen are no longer making that choice for themselves. They go in the direction they are bound to. And the reason that priests wear this whenever you see them, and it'll change how you see them from now on, I hope, it's not for anything other than a reminder to them and us that, that I have accepted this call to be bound to Jesus and to serve him where he has placed me. It's an ordination rooted in service. Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And so for me, the significance of this sabbatical space was actually taking these vows into a call to, to serve the church, this church, in the way that we've just talked about. So here's what I want to say. I have, in true fashion, gone over time my first Sunday back. Forgive me. <laughs> here's what I want to say is this. I am back, and I have missed you. <laughs> 
it is just great to be back with you. I have yearned for this day while also deeply appreciating the space that you've given me. I hope that you're pleased to see me as well uh, and that together we kind of go into this fall and new year with the renewed enthusiasm that God is still working and speaking through us. This ordination may not be what you expected me to talk about when I came back, but it's only a good thing. I believe it's good for me, and I hope it's not arrogant. Forgive me if it is, but I actually believe that, that it, it is good for all of us. I think it's good for churches to have pastors that have given their life to serve Jesus, and, and, and I hope that you resonate and hear that with me. I have other things to tell you about. I had some really cool Holy Spirit moments during my ordination. I'll talk about them in a different service. But I am back here with the reaffirmation of a desire to serve and now a call and ordination to serve. I am going to keep teaching you. You're not getting rid of me. I came to Westside from the UK because that's what God had put in my heart. But the role here has changed. And, and I want to make new vows and new commitments to, to adapt to what you are now asking of me as, as one of the leaders here at the church. I am going to keep teaching, but I also want to serve you Eucharist more regularly as well. Because I don't just want to offer you words, I want to offer you actions. And this is what John's gospel beautifully invites us into, is there are words, but there are also actions of service. And it's actions of service that help us keep Jesus at the center. So why don't you stand with me? And if you'll allow me, if it's not too priestly, I want to offer you a blessing. Uh, you can say amen at the points where it says amen. But let me just say this before we go. Thank you once again. I'll probably say thank you more times than this, but thank you for your generosity to me and my family to allow us to be away. I don't think I'm understating it when I say it has changed our lives. The chance to have that space, to spend that time, it means beyond what I can express to you. So thank you for that. Let me offer you this blessing. God the Father, who has loved the eternal Son from before the foundation of the world, shed that love upon you, his children. Christ, who by his incarnation gathered into one things earthly and heavenly, fill you with joy and peace. The Holy Spirit, by whose presence the church is empowered, give you grace to carry the good news of Christ. And now, may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you always. And I've waited three months to tell you this. May you go with God's grace and peace. Turn to somebody else and offer them your grace and peace. And then the subtle shift to this blessing, then get a donut. Yeah. <laughs>